primary care knowledge-based fibromyalgia part one. Hello and welcome to this first episode of a two-parter talking all about fibromyalgia. Thank you to everyone who's given us feedback that highlighted that lots of people wanted some learning about fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. One of my friends working in rheumatology was kind enough to recommend these absolutely excellent speakers mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, that we're very privileged to have had a really good conversation with. So it's Professor Anthony Jones and consultant physiotherapist William Gregory. And they both specialise in chronic pain and fibromyalgia at Salford Royal Hospital. Yeah. So I think we all know that fibromyalgia is a challenging diagnosis Mm. and it is really difficult to diagnose and to know what symptoms are actually related to the fibromyalgia for patients and and managing them long term is very difficult. Yeah. And we hope you find, as we have, that straight from the get go with these episodes that our understanding of the topic and the preconceptions that we had were challenged. We came away with a really much deeper understanding of all things chronic pain. Definitely. So in the first episode today, um, we cover what fibromyalgia is um, and how that fits in the landscape of chronic pain and how it's related to chronic fatigue syndrome. And then that leads us on to talk about what is known about the likely mechanisms that are happening in it um, with the idea of central sensitization and how to explain all of this to patients in an easy way. And then we go through associated features, examination findings and important differentials and examinations. And this then provokes follow-up points from Professor Anthony Jones about the increased risk that these patients have long-term of cardiovascular disease and cancer. So then in two weeks, we'll release part two and that will look at management of fibromyalgia. So that covers it in quite a lot of detail. They also talk a little bit about research in the area and resources available for practitioners and patients. Brilliant. So we hope you enjoy. Uh, So my name's uh, Will Gregory. I'm a consultant physiotherapist here at Salford Royal. I've been working with patients with fibromyalgia in one form or another for the past 15 years, but Uh initially as the lead physiotherapist and then an advanced practitioner and now at consultant level. So I've seen a lot of the patients, but different ways of managing them through those progressions, I guess. Lovely. Um, What about you? I'm uh, Professor Anthony Jones and I'm a consultant rheumatologist at Salford Royal NHS Trust and I set up some years ago a musculoskeletal and neuropathic pain clinic here and um, I'm also a professor of neuro-rheumatology which I just about learnt to pronounce (laughs) and uh, have a major interest in the brain and how the brain processes pain including fibromyalgia. And how did you kind of get involved with patients with fibromyalgia back initially? What was it that drew you in? Well, if you're a rheumatologist, you can't help but get involved with patients with fibromyalgia. Mm. And um, for me, they were the the kingpins, if you like, Mm -hmm. that um, the challenge was to explain their symptoms in, in terms of that we could understand uh, in relation to how the brain functions. And so that's been my challenge. And I I think we've gone at least part of the way to do that. Mm, What about you, Will? Um, I suppose as the physiotherapist in the team, you slightly follow the passions of your consultants that you work for. So obviously I get referrals from um, Anthony and and that meant we had quite a well-developed fibromyalgia service and education programs and exercise classes, Mm. even when I started in post 15 years ago. So we've been quite ahead on that. And 
actually it was our occupational therapist who set up all of that but then we worked together for a few years and then she's gone elsewhere and I end up inheriting not only the service but also the passion for helping these patients. Great. So if we start off with questions wise a seemingly simple question but what is fibromyalgia? Okay (laughs) okay so um Fibromyalgia is a chronic widespread pain condition that's associated often with sleep disturbance Mm -hmm. and a whole range of other symptoms that sometimes we refer to as somatoform pain disorders. Sometimes we refer them to as, as unexplained symptoms such as dysmenorrhea, migraine, chronic fatigue, and other associated disorders. Okay. Can you talk us through some of the common theories about what may be causing fibromyalgia? Okay, so um, we don't completely understand how fibromyalgia comes about, but we've done quite a lot of work in my own research group and other research groups around the world to understand it better. The, the most evidence is for this being a, a problem with the brain. So it's a brain disorder, we okay. think. Um, there is a little bit of evidence that hasn't really been replicated that there may also be some subtle damage to some of the mo- smaller nerve fibers in the periphery. Mm-hmm. But the, the kind of overwhelming body of work really has been demonstrating that the brains of people with fibromyalgia work in subtly slightly different ways and um, we call this phenomenon central sensitization in other words sensations that might normally be below a level of detection Mm -hmm. or may normally be perfectly tolerable um, become much less so and central sensitization really means we think this is going on in the central nervous system. And uh, there are lots of different theories for, for, for what's going on. In, in our hands, we've shown that patients with fibromyalgia have an abnormality of expectation of pain, such that when they're expecting pain, there's an imbalance in the way the different structures in the brain that process pain uh, function, such that... Um, in the frontal cortex there's an exaggerated response which correlates very nicely with that abnormal coping mechanisms such as increased catastrophizing Mm -hmm. so saying things must be bad when they aren't necessarily bad whereas a bit of the brain that's a little bit deeper called the insular cortex there's an exaggerated response to expectation which correlates very nicely uh, with the extent of their clinical pain. And uh, the interesting thing about that is this is all very reversible, potentially reversible, and it's actually reversible in that we've seen quite a substantial reduction in those fine-tuning problems in patients after they've had a relatively brief course of talking therapy. So it's not just a potential mechanism, it's a potentially quite optimistic mechanism in Mm -hmm. that you can take control over it and therapies can modulate those responses to patients' benefit. Yeah, Mm. very interesting. 
yeah, early doors a very positive message from quite that already kind of challenging my ideas and preconceptions of the yes. of the condition actually. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's imp- it's it's been quite important for patients because when patients say, "Well, why am I getting this pain?" I explain to them in those terms. I say, well, you've, you've got some fine-tuning problems in the brain. You're not imagining this, mm. but you're not processing pain in the same way as other people. Mm. But it's pretty subtle, and it's about as subtle as, you know, the gear's not working perfectly in a car. Yeah. yeah. It's at that level, mm. and we think that that's driving their pain, but they can take more control over it. Yeah. It might seem that they can't, but they can. Yeah. And we've demonstrated that they can. And that are, there are new therapies coming along, which we and others are developing, that can help them to cope better with their pain. Brilliant. And we'll definitely be talking about that a little bit later <laughs> on then. <laughs> um, and do you know, um, how common is fibromyalgia? Well, when I kind of set up working in the service I had to produce a a business case of why we should have a consultant physio in the team Uh and part of that was looking at prevalence so if you look at the literature there's a fairly recent systematic review and it looks at epidemiological um, studies across the UK and beyond Mm. and the suggestion consistently on about 20 30 of these papers is that it's about one in 10 people would meet the criteria for fibromyalgia diagnosis that doesn't mean they all have it but it is that many people are living with chronic pain that's in more than one area wow it's quite significant actually yeah yeah and and, you know i thought that figure was just me trying to um, feather the cap of the business case i was writing but actually It, it does seem that that is the potential mm. yeah. um, cohort, of, cohort of patients we're looking at. It could be that it's chronic low back pain that they call it, yeah. rather than what would become fibromyalgia. Mm. But living with pain is a big problem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so if we if we have a patient in front of us, um, when should we be suspecting that they might have um, fibromyalgia? Kind of what's the common symptoms that we're looking for? Well, I think the first thing is the number of symptoms. You know, if you're beginning to feel a bit overwhelmed by symptoms, because ah. their their symptoms won't be just uh, in terms of places that hurt. There'll be other symptoms that go with that. So I think if you start thinking that you're getting fatigue, writing down all the different symptoms, then <laughs> you should start to think about it then. Okay. But then, of course, the, the, the key thing is the widespreadness of it. Mm. Now, in my view there should be no absolute cutoff because really what we're talking about is a spectrum of disorders Mm -hmm. that goes from chronic regional pain to widespread pain. And there is no absolute cutoff there. Um, So um, I I prefer to um, uh, think about chronic pain symptoms that are more at the fibromyalgic end or more at the chronic regional right. pain end. Okay. Yeah. But all these patients tend to share characteristics. And by the way, they also share common mechanisms. So we showed that, for instance, in patients with osteoarthritis, mm-hmm. they had quite similar abnormal mechanisms to the patients with full-blown fibromyalgia. They were just more exaggerated in the patients with fibromyalgia. Um, So I think we're talking about an operational definition, which is 
very widespread pain, but essentially we're talking about most patients with fibromyalgia having pain pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And that they either report that pain or it also manifests as tenderness, okay. which is fairly widespread, but doesn't have to be. And there are patients who just express pain, which is widespread, that is not particularly associated with tenderness. But most of them, the two correlate quite well. And you mentioned there that um, at the beginning about how we might be listing lots of different types of symptoms in these patients. And what other sorts of things might they report? So if you look at the um, the American College of Rheumatology website, they've got a good template for that. So the 2010 fibromyalgia diagnostic criteria has a list of about 35 different symptoms. And you'd ask about all of those yeah. and, and tick or not tick those. They then did a review of that between 2010 and the 26 uh, production, and the 26 versions just got it down to six areas okay. that are seen to be the most um, useful questions yeah. to ask. Yeah. Um, and they are fatigue, like you've said, Anthony, but um, trouble thinking or remembering, they've put there word for word, which colloquially yeah. might be called fibro fog, but you wouldn't get your new patient calling that brain fog, maybe. Yeah. Um, waking up tired, non-refreshing sleep. Yeah. Um, Pain or cramps in the lower abdomen sits in there as well. Mm. And then depression and headache are the other two, or migraine, as, as you said, mm. perhaps. Okay. So there can be a whole constellation of symptoms, but those seem to be the six that most closely draw into the diagnosis. Mm. So the other thing to be aware of is these patients will have a, a history <laughs> behind them. And so what might lead up to their current consultation is intermittent or persistent regional pains. Mm -hmm. They may have had recurrent shoulder pain or back pain. They might or might not have consulted with that. Then they may have had other complaints. Slowly you might see a pattern of increased consulting mm. over yeah. a period of time. They might well have had problems with anxiety or depression mm -hmm. along the way. And if you ask them, and this is often difficult to do at the first consultation but they will often have a history of abuse of some kind in their mm. early years and the percentages vary but it's really very very common indeed in so, fact I'd say most patients have some problem like that that's occurred in their mm. early years. Mm -mm. And obviously, whenever we, we meet somebody for the first time or um, we're trying to think about a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, there will be other things that we need to rule out before that. What are the most common differentials that we need to be ruling out before we can say it's fibromyalgia? Well, if I talk about chronic fatigue syndrome first, because I used to lead the physio service here for that, so I'd see chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia quite regularly. Yeah. And I'd probably consider it a bit of a, a continuum from one to the other where you have pure pain with your pure fibromyalgia and pure fatigue with your chronic fatigue syndrome, yep. but quite a lot of patients sit somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way we tend to use it, certainly with the endocrinologists here that manage and diagnose um, chronic fatigue syndrome, is thinking about the sleep. So your fibromyalgia patient will have a deterioration in sleep so they might report three hours or four hours sleep mm. you know they'll go to bed and struggle to get to sleep or they'll be regularly interrupted overnight mm -hmm. your chronic fatigue patient might well sleep for 10 hours or 
12 hours and then still have an afternoon nap and an evening nap when they get home from work or whatever and there's that constant sleep deficit that they feel despite having more than the recommended or needed amount i'll let anthony talk about the other differentials okay so the things that you might miss are relatively rare Probably one of the more common things is thyroid problems. So neuroendocrine problems, of which uh, hypothyroidism is the most common. But both hyper and hypothyroidism can be associated with muscle tenderness. Again, relatively uncommon for those to present with the sort of widespread pain. They may have a few aches and pains, but it is relatively uncommon Mm. some of the other endocrine problems can present with aches and pains but again very unlikely to be widespread so that's why it's very important to do a good clinical examination so that you know you're not missing the the rare things Um, other problems are again mainly metabolic so very occasionally problems with calcium So either increased or uh, low levels of calcium uh, can cause muscle pain. Mm -hmm. Again, a very unusual presentation with widespread pain, but easy to to rule out. So definitely check calcium. And the other things, really low-grade inflammatory immune problems. Mm -hmm. Again, you're not going to be caught out by this very often. Very occasionally you might see somebody with a a low-grade inflammation of the muscle, so myositis, particularly in the elderly, might just go under the radar where they don't get such florid symptoms. But again, myositis usually presents with proximal weakness first. And so on examination, always check for proximal weakness. If there's no proximal weakness, they're very unlikely to have myositis. Uh, But again, it's very easy to do some inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP. If you're particularly worried about possibility of myopathy, the CPK will will rule out most myopathies. Very occasionally, rare myopathies might, you know, get under that. (laughs) But again, those are going to be clinically fairly obvious. So biochemical profile, including calcium, always check their T4. Mm -hmm. It's worth checking vitamin D because Mm -hmm. these patients tend not to get out much. And um, there's a slightly contentious relationship between vitamin D and fibromyalgia because vitamin D deficiency is common. Mm -hmm. We don't think it causes or even contributes very much to fibromyalgic symptoms because in my experience, you think, ah, I know what's wrong here and you put them back on vitamin D and their symptoms don't usually change but very occasionally they can but in in my experience again that's more common with regional pain that the symptoms will change but because it's common worth checking as part of your screening and then the inflammatory markers uh, low-grade inflammatory arthritis again is you're not going to miss this really if you're doing a good clinical examination Mm. you'll pick up that they've got tender small to medium-sized joints and again those patients don't tend to have widespread muscle and joint pain in the in the same way as these patients do so i'd be cautious try to exclude those things the diagnosis is 
by exclusion. Yep. Uh, there yeah. is no positive test which will give you a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. And because of sometimes patient scepticism, sometimes physician scepticism, yep. it's important to, to rule these other things out. Yeah. And then once you've done that, in parallel, really, get on with managing their pain. So I would never allow investigations of some not very likely possibility to stop you getting on with managing their pain. Yeah, yeah. that definitely makes sense. Just to add another yeah. slightly less scientific thing to that is that lots of people with fibromyalgia describe this subjective swelling of their joints. Mm. Um, mm. So that it feels like their hands are swollen, it feels like their feet are swollen. Mm. And if they mm. were to just come and say to you, oh, my hands swell up, you're suddenly going down the inflammatory arthritis yeah. kind of thought process yeah. so it's worth then saying oh do they go red when they swell you know i notice you're still wearing your wedding ring it's, does that ever get tighter for you or have you yet to take it off and sometimes knowing that the subjective swelling is part of the fibromyalgia pattern just allows you to not be distracted by a report of swelling and it's yeah. a genuine sensation our patients get this feeling of swelling yeah but, but it's visible. to do with probably central pain processing pathways rather than genuine joint swelling in the hands or feet on, right. on those yeah. occasions yeah. that's quite helpful yeah because um, yeah. i've heard that i have had that yeah. from patients yeah. and, and it's often in clinics if you do see people with pains and you're trying to work out about inflammatory joints yes. yeah and that so makes it very difficult because there's a, a disconnect between what they're seeing and what you're seeing so yeah. that can create a bit of a and sometimes you need to explain that yes it does yeah. feel like swelling and this yes. is common in people with the diagnosis we might be working you towards yeah okay there was the big s factor campaign for inflammatory arthritis a number of years ago back when the x factor was perhaps more famous <laughs> than it is these days and had a better reputation but the s factor being the squeeze test one of them so you squeeze the metacarpals okay, which would yeah. be positive for an inflammatory joint swelling but negative for the subjective kind of feeling of swelling for somebody with potentially fibromyalgia nice, okay. there were two other yeah. s's but i'll let your listeners go and look those up <laughs> <laughs> very kind of you <laughs> yeah sorry the the other thing worth just mentioning is that um their perceptions generally can be altered so is not just necessarily pain. Mm -hmm. They often will have quite particular issues around taste. They may well find that they find noise very aversive. So they, they live in a perceptual world that is slightly different mm. uh, from, from ours. Okay. Um, you mentioned a few interesting bits on examination to look out for in terms of the squeeze test, the S factor. Um, and generally examining their joints and thinking about proximal weakness. In terms of an examination for people with widespread pain, what would you recommend generally doing? In primary care. In primary in, care. In, in primary care. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I kind of mentioned the, the American College of Rheumatology, the ACR document, and that was written for primary care. Mm. And it is quite nice because it can be completed by your patient, which is what we do in clinic. They'll fill in the questionnaire for us prior to coming in. Mm. And that allows them to look at a body chart and tick the areas where they have their pain. Mm. And then also rate those six most common factors of fatigue levels. Do you want to say roughly how long it takes them to... <laughs> yeah, good question. Well. <laughs> um, it's usually about three or four minutes, sometimes a bit longer. Yeah. But it's it's quite easy to fill in. It's quite visual. And if, if, if we're lucky, they actually score it for us before they come in as well, <laughs> because there's a little hint on the questionnaire there as well. 
Hmm. So that's, all, that's that, something we could technically probably give patients to take away and then fill in from when they come yeah. back for their follow-up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of replaced what was in the ACR guidance before 2010, which was these 18 tender points that you were we were prodding our patients yeah. on. Yes. Um, I think that probably still persists, the idea of a score out of 18. And it does have perhaps some relevance, but you'll get patients who score 18 out of 18 and others who score 0 out of 18, and yet they both have the same diagnosis potentially. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of subjective interpretation of that yeah the classical definition for research purposes and it's only for research purposes is that you you need tenderness below and above the waist in the limbs and you need some axial tenderness so some tenderness down the spine and likewise for pain and then there are these sort of classical tender points that you're meant to sort of test yeah but now that everyone accepts that you can have chronic widespread pain without tenderness mm. there's kind of probably no point trying to remember those specific tender points because there's nothing magic about them anyway mm. yeah they're just a group of common tender points that people agreed on some years ago yeah so i think don't, probably don't torture yourself too much <laughs> yeah. um it's actually the symptoms that are the important thing and if they've got you know, if they've got pain everywhere, yeah. they've probably got fibromyalgia <laughs> yeah, unless exactly. there's another explanation for it. Uh, and I guess your history and examination in that case is more to make sure that we aren't missing something like an inflammatory or neurological condition or even actually something more serious um, like your malignancies, you know, METs or, or even myeloma, for example. Exactly. Um, and I think not missing anything and also demonstrating to the patient you're not missing anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it is... A disease or syndrome that has quite a lot of shall we say mystique about it and the patients are unsure healthcare professionals are unsure yep. and then there's not a lot of treatments at the end of no. that so I think a, a really thorough examination really repays that kind of trust yeah that, she was confident that, that both sides have you know because then you won't be worried, oh, my God, did I miss something terrible? Yeah. The mm. patient won't be thinking you haven't even bothered to, to look at me, put a hand on their tummy. Yeah. And the other thing is these patients do have a lot of comorbidities. So it's important to manage those as well. Yeah. Because uh, if you manage those well and their fibromyalgia well, then the patient's going to do so much better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with this going out to general practice, I would be remiss as a physiotherapist not to mention first contact practitioners and this idea that there will be perhaps more physiotherapists or paramedics or other professions looking after some of the musculoskeletal work that GPs traditionally saw. Yes. And that might leave you in a position where the person assessing this potential fibromyalgia will have more musculoskeletal experience. And certainly for the physios that I work with, sometimes their hunch is enough to say, you know, I've been seeing this patient, they've got pain, it doesn't feel quite right to me, it doesn't feel like a normal shoulder pain or knee pain yeah. or whatever, and, and sometimes that hunch is enough for them to then have that conversation which leads to the referral and potential diagnosis. So kind of going with your gut feeling in this isn't quite responding as it should yeah. to the pathway that I'm going down. Yeah, oh, that's an excellent point, yeah. 
So in terms of investigations, you mentioned about checking for calcium, uh, CK if appropriate, vitamin D and um, thyroid. Thyroid, of course. Uh, any other investigations that you think are important? I mean, just you know, use this opportunity as a general health screening. Yeah, yeah. The usual thing: check their cardiovascular, sugar, uh, uh, and yeah. and diabetes, etc. Yeah. Because these patients, as I say, they they won't die of their fibromyalgia. What they will die of is cancer and cardiovascular diseases disproportionately. Really? Yeah, so they have they have an increased risk of those two things, mm-hmm. for reasons that we don't completely understand. There's probably a smoking related, low exercise, high weight yeah. component. So um, these patients need to be looked after well in the traditional way, yes. as mm-hmm. well as having their fibromyalgia mm-hmm. looked after. Yeah probably with the blood test is that you know i mentioned the acr the american college of rheumatology questionnaire we also get them to do an anxiety and depression questionnaire Ah, as part of that pre-clinic screening which would be something that's probably worth doing at that stage in general practice just to see what overlap that has yeah Yeah, definitely because you you see it in the patient groups anyway there is so much overlap a lot of the patients with fibromyalgia do have depression that Mm, i've been encountering yeah this is slightly just in response to what you're saying about fibromyalgia and chronic pain that the diagnosis might be more common than we think in your opinion how useful do you think it is as a diagnosis well we both work in the area so hopefully we think it's quite useful um i think there's it's quite interesting because you know 18 months i've been in the consultant post and i've been seeing a lot more of the new patients you know first contact into the hospital Mm. And it always surprises me within that time period that some people will come in, you'll do the consult, you'll give them the diagnosis, and suddenly a weight will go off them and they'll go, right, thanks very much, off I go, and, and head off. You're like, no, no, wait back, let me, <laughs> let me tell you how stuff. you can make yourself better with it. But they just want to find the answer. Mm, okay. So um, I think kind of getting to that is quite useful. Yeah. Uh, and there is some nice data looking at healthcare utilisation in that pre-diagnosis on average, this cohort of patients would maybe see somebody... F- 20 25 times in the 12 months leading up to diagnosis but then post-diagnosis it drops down to four or five in that year after which (laughs) sounds like oh we're saving money on appointments but we don't really care about that what it is is the patient is a lot better informed and better able to self-manage which is a crucial part of a lifelong condition yeah Yeah. yes I, i mean i would echo that i think it's it's crucial to have a if you've got something that's so debilitating yeah um, you need to have an answer for yourself. You need to have a diagnosis. You also need to have a diagnosis so you can explain it to your family. Yep. And now we've mm. got some brain mechanisms to go with this. So it's not just something that thousands of people have made up. It's a biological phenomenon. Yep. Mm-hmm. We might not have all the answers. We certainly don't have all the treatments. But this is the thing that they're faced with. And as a team this can be managed much better. Mm. That's an optimistic way to go forward rather than saying, oh, well, you've got something that we don't really believe in. Sort yourself out. Yeah. yeah. Which is a terrible place to be left in, yeah. really. Yeah. We're, we're, we're yeah. somewhat fortunate with the terminology in that we can call it chronic widespread pain or we can call it fibromyalgia, and fibromyalgia is a subset of chronic widespread pain. So yeah. you can have chronic widespread pain and not quite hit the criteria scores mm-hmm. to then become fibromyalgia. So if you have a, a young patient in who's 
parents got fibromyalgia and had a terrible time and this this person comes in and they did, do not want to hear you say the word fibromyalgia there's a possibility they fill out the questionnaires and they're not quite high enough to call it that mm. so you call it chronic widespread pain and they leave happy and prepared to manage it and because the word is still gaining traction i had a look in advance of today's recording 1976 it was first coined this term so um it's um yeah 43 years old 44 years old but still for some people the word has negative associations so you need to be a little bit careful about what people want to call it and i don't particularly mind if people want to call it chronic widespread pain or fibromyalgia or or a different name Mm. so long as they're prepared to then go and confront it and start um, trying to treat it. Brilliant. Mm. Um, so yes, kind of moving on from that with the, the diagnosis point, um, we have someone who's come in with widespread pain, um, and the examination's essentially normal. The investigations are normal. Are we okay to then make a diagnosis of fibromyalgia? Because yeah. I think there's a lot of hesitancy in there primary is. care. Yeah. Yes, I mean the hesitancy isn't just in primary care, actually. So you can yeah. be reassured about that. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> I think there is this sort of cloak of mystery over chronic pain in general, mm. which I, for one, would like to uh, do something to dismantle. Yeah. yeah. But yes, absolutely. I mean, you can be fairly confident right at your first consultation before you got the blood test back, mm-hmm. because mostly you don't find abnormal blood tests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can say, well, I, I think you've probably got fibromyalgia. I just want to do a few routine screening tests. But this is what I think you've got. And I'll tell you a little bit about what it is. Yeah. And you can start the management really at that Stage. It's really similar, actually, because we did a um, an episode with gastroenterology about um, irritable bowel syndrome mm-hmm. right back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about how the framing is really important. So patients, if they think you're trying to hunt for a diagnosis, then they stop believing that you kind of know what it is when you get to that end point. And it feels mm-hmm. like fibromyalgia is very similar. You yes. want to frame it that I think it's fibromyalgia, but we're just checking these things in yes. case. Yes, yeah. 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 agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's... It's quite important to be sympathetic but firm at that point yeah. because a lot of these patients will have back pain inevitably mm-hmm. and I'll say, well, are you not going to even do a, an MR scan? My neighbour had an MR scan and it showed this, that and the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there's no specific indications for an MR scan, then the answer is no. Mm. Likewise with a, a brain scan. Mm-hmm. One thing I would say is um, that if there are odd features then, you know, neurological examination is really important. Yep. And that's at the initial diagnosis and subsequently. Because, for instance, you know, if you have a patient who has all the standard symptoms, but then says they've got numbness in their legs. Yeah. yeah. That's a tricky one because you think, oh, yes, more numbness, you know, dizziness and numbness. Here we go. But every now and again, one of those patients will catch you out and they do have numbness below the waist and they have a different diagnosis. So when things don't quite fit or things change, uh, it's important to go back to square one and do the Rethink. proper things and examine the patient mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. adequately. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of it, especially when someone has a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and comes in with further mm. symptoms, I think it can sometimes yes. be bundled into the diagnosis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. But especially with neurological symptoms, I think you're right, it's important to go back and do mm. that full neurological um, examination to make mm. sure. Mm. So we've covered some of this again just before, but um, if you're explaining the diagnosis to a patient how do you normally deliver the news 
Well, I, I explain it to them really in the terms of my own understanding. Mm -hmm. So I say you've got something called fibromyalgia or widespread pain, and uh, this is a chronic condition. It's often associated with psychological distress mm -hmm. and, and sometimes problems with unfortunate events early on in childhood or adolescence. And we don't understand everything about it, but we think this is caused by um, problems with the fine-tuning in the brain, such that you will tend to feel pain a little bit more than other people. And we think this is what's driving your pain. Um, it's quite a difficult thing to treat. It's a, quite a difficult thing, certainly, to cure. Not very many patients get rid of these symptoms mm. but these fine-tuning problems are potentially reversible you can take more control over those with a bit of help from us we know it responds to exercise and talking therapies in the long term with relatively minimal side effects yeah. there are a few drugs that can be helpful but they also all have, you know, quite significant side effects. So we'd need to have that discussion with you about what kinds of treatments you would prefer. Yeah, I think that's very nice. It's very realistic, yeah. but optimistic at the same yeah. time. I would appreciate yeah. an explanation like that. Mm. Yeah. 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 Do you have anything different that you um, would say? Well, I, I, I tend to collect analogies to explain it, but most of my analogies I fall back on are a bit dated. So my favourite is the car alarm. So we're describing your patient's response to pain a bit like those posh cars used to have alarms and you'd walk past them and the alarm would go off and the whole neighbourhood <laughs> would be warned. But you're not trying to break into their car. Mm. It's just the alarm's going off. So that to try and t t tell the person in front of you that the pain they're feeling, that the alarm within them isn't necessarily a sign of damage or harm. Ah. It's just that rather like this car alarm probably from the 80s or 90s is going off inappropriately like your burglar alarm goes off inappropriately occasionally yeah, yeah. Um, and I also talk about the mobile phone so if you have your mobile phone and you fail to charge it and you only charge it occasionally and you don't charge it enough it's always running a bit run down and it never works as it should do and the charge doesn't last as long yeah. if we think about fatigue and how yeah, our patients sleep. sleep and don't kind of regenerate themselves yeah um, and maybe that's intentional that we have two different ways of explaining it because most of the patients will see both of us over the course of the mm. year or two that they're under our care or mm. longer. Mm. So maybe that's natural that we explain it in different ways yeah. and then some ways work for some people and some ways work uh, for others. Yeah. But it, it's worth having a little script in your head yeah. um, for these situations just so that it, it flows fairly naturally. Yeah. Definitely. Yes, I think the, the alarm bell analogy is quite a good one yeah and i i would say the one one slight problem you can run up against when you're talking about what's going on in the brain is patients or their relatives say so you're you're saying this is all in my head doctor yeah. Yeah. and the answer to that has to be yes it is it has to be you can only experience pain because you've got a brain mm -hmm. yeah so it has to be there uh, what I'm not saying is that you're making these symptoms up. Mm -hmm. yeah. These are genuine symptoms that you're experiencing because your brain is working subtly differently from 
somebody else's brain who doesn't have those symptoms. Yeah. And normally they, you know, sometimes they can get angry, but mostly, you know, they're happy with that kind of Yeah, I think explanation. that's because you're, you're accepting it, you're accepting you believe them, and I think that's yes. what most of the patients want. Yeah, absolutely. That, I think that comes across from meeting with our fibromyalgia support groups is when they're not believed uh makes it very very hard indeed yeah mm. all right so should we delve into our learning points sarah what did you find from the episode um so i alluded to at the beginning that i really found the whole understanding what's going on in the brain in fibromyalgia really mm. interesting and i think sort of assimilating that idea of widespread pain and central sensitization mm -hmm. and the mechanism of it I just thought it was fascinating and it's going to be so so useful to tell patients as well I completely agree and yeah. I think um, linking to that I thought that I picked up lots of useful ways to be, to be able to communicate with patients yeah and um, so the fact that they're not processing pain in the same way as others making sure that you believe them you need to validate the idea that they're not making it up yeah. um and um also communicating to them that they can take control I think was really important yeah and I really liked the car alarm analogy I think mm. I'll definitely be using that in the yeah. future that just made it make so much more sense to me yeah Will Gregory mentioned patients talking about swelling yes. and I think both of us recognize that we've talked about that and with patients and, and it felt like a disconnect and I mentioned that and I, th I think that's really great to understand why there's that disconnect between what people are seeing and what we're seeing yeah, exactly <laughs> and then I, I took away a few surprising things is how i'd probably term it mm -hmm. so the fact that it's so common that one in ten people would actually meet the diagnosis for fibromyalgia mm -hmm. And then that disproportionate risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease in these patients, Absolutely. really surprising. Yeah. And then also the bit about the consultations, so that they'll have so many 20 to 25 pre-diagnosis consultations that can go right down to four mm -hmm. um, and how important that diagnosis is for patients. Yeah, I think that was something that came across only later when we were talking about it with them, like actually how important is it if one in 10 people have chronic pain, mm. how important is a diagnosis and a label, but actually if people can crack on with dealing with what they've got then yeah yeah that exactly makes a massive difference um mm -hmm. and also just reconsidering the diagnosis or considering the symptoms that they're presenting with to make sure that we're not missing exactly don't just group it in with their fibromyalgia if they've got new symptoms and um, I think it was interesting considering the points that he made about um, being overwhelmed by symptoms and if you start to notice an increased consulting from a patient over time that they might be indicators of a fibromyalgia diagnosis mm -hmm. and I've definitely seen that in patients and I have noticed that in patients mm -hmm. who end up with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia but it also came into my mind about the episode that we've recorded about um, cancer diagnosis and that's coming up um, quite soon mm -hmm. um, for the listeners and in that we do talk about increased consulting being a flag to think about cancer mm. and so it's so difficult like how do you make those decisions yeah yeah because on the one hand you want to try and give a really clear message that's coming across from everyone in the in the practice about the pillars of management um but also being really careful not to miss anything yeah especially um, serious things like that <laughs> yeah um i think and i think you said to me a little bit earlier about how yeah. it's about um like maybe follow up in yeah. using that in primary care and consistency yeah. yeah but I will admit I think it's it's incredibly tricky yeah um so yeah but these, these are helpful tips nonetheless so if you'd like to get in touch we're on twitter at pckb podcast 
and we'll be tweeting a little bit about new episodes links to interesting research that might crop up tell a friend if you're enjoying us share us on social media or in any groups that you have exactly and um, you can also email us on primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and um, we also have our survey um, that we always plug uh, just to get a bit more formal feedback from people and as you can see we do take it on board and we do try and do episodes that people do write in about so if you've got a thought just let us know and we'll be back in two weeks with our second part of fibrobiology which we'd really recommend that you listen to because there's some gems in there about how to manage patients with this condition till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.